you know, we, we had been discussing earlier talking about fear and anxiety. And one of the, the questions I had for, for you, Gary, is, you know, how do you prevent fear from, as a leader, how do you prevent fear from paralyzing your team, from, from a negative impacting your team? I think a leader has to, to set an atmosphere that's uh, encouraging and conducive for everyone to feel comfortable enough to contribute ideas. Um, absent that, everyone's going to sit back quietly and wait to see which direction the leader wants to go. And then you deny yourself the opportunity to get these other very helpful inputs. And people should be made to feel that, you know, every idea is worth raising and considering, and that the decisions we make will be made, um, you know, largely based on the team's input. So in essence, we rise and fall together. And we, we use this, I think, very comfortably in my law enforcement negotiation context, because on a particular incident, you might be the person actually on the phone, the, what we call the primary negotiator, but in essence, what the public doesn't know or what the perpetrator we're dealing with doesn't know is there's a team of five or six or maybe more negotiators there who are really helping devise the strategy and laying out a framework for which we're trying to uh, move forward and, and, and get peaceful compliance. So when you're the actual voice, you're reassured that the whole weight of the world is not on your shoulders individually. And um, you know, and what I always try to do as a leader too, I said, listen, uh, you're going to make a verbal mistake here and there. Everybody does it. No one's going to kill themselves or, you know, do something <laughs> tragic because of a bad word you said. It doesn't work that way. Just know that you're advancing the strategy that we have collectively thought out, gained, weighed pros and cons, and agreed to. And with that, I think it really empowers and enables uh, someone to move forward with confidence. And I think you can certainly translate that to a business context. You mentioned earlier, and, I, and I'd love, you know, your experience is, is so unique. Um, and as I've, you know, found out by reading your book, but your, your experience is unique. Is there anything, any of your experiences that you think sort of resonate with this, how you create that sort of culture and rise and fold together that, that sticks yeah, there's out a your couple mind. of points, you know, in the uh, 1993 Waco incident, tragically as it ended, uh, the negotiation team was actually a pretty well-oiled and functioning uh, entity. And we got 35 people out, including 21 children. And, you know, the rest of the story gets more complicated, but one of the things I, I tried to do as the team leader was to create that, atmosphere that encouraged inputs, because we were all dealing with a situation that had never come up before. There's no, you know, long history of how to deal with uh, religious cult leaders in a highly tense situation. And, and I always remember, um, in addition to very senior gray-haired negotiators on my team, we had a few younger negotiators who were there because they were geographically assigned to Texas. Um, so they would play supportive parts on the team, maintaining the situation boards, you know, uh, running various tasks. And on one of these uh, discussions in terms of what we might do next to try to uh, enhance the relationship with the Branch Davidians, this young negotiator in our discussions kind of timidly spoke up and came up with what ended up being an incredible idea. 
Uh, and it was so brilliant. The, the moment I heard it, I, I joked with my team and I said, I was just going to say that. You know, of course, everybody laughed and knew I was being self-deprecating. But it's always uh, reminded me that that story has that, you know, if you can make this young person, uh, this new negotiator, recently trained, no actual experience, feel comfortable enough amongst a bunch of grizzly old, you know, people with you know, dozens and dozens of years of negotiation experience, feel comfortable enough to share an idea, well, heck, that might just be a really crackerjack idea that you want to think about. And, um, you know, in a backhanded sort of compliment to myself, I'm glad I helped create that atmosphere that gave us that really good idea. And it it led to a pretty meaningful um, release of the first adult we got out of there. So, um, you know, it was a a pretty pretty neat thing to see and do. The other thing, um, you know, you have to, ensure your team that we're we're going to keep everybody on the same sheet of music. We work 12-hour shifts at, at Waco and, and do it all major sieges. And I've always made a, a sort of a verbal contract with the teams. If you're going off shift, um, don't worry that we're going to solve it a half an hour after you leave and, and then right. our team gets the credit and your shift is forgotten about. It's, if we feel as though we're going to have a major breakthrough and succeed in uh, getting a surrender, uh, we're going to call you up and call you to come back in, get up from your hotel room or wherever you're at, come back in here. This is a team accomplishment. We never name a, a particular negotiator. We don't say, you know, Joe Smith negotiated him out. No, it's the negotiation team did it. We don't talk directly to the press. We'll let the on-scene commander. So th- there's a, a kind of a range of things you can do, Jim, that convey to the team that no one's trying to claim all the credit. No one has an exclusive... Um, you know, a set of ideas that we're going to follow. And it became a big challenge for me as my uh, career, you know, was, was near the end because, you know, after you develop a certain reputation, um, I had to be careful what I said and when I said it because it could overly influence the team's thinking, you know, which was not my intent. I wanted their candid input. I didn't want them to merely wait for me to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Now, a lot of those times I knew exactly what needed to be done and we ended up doing that. But I had to be careful that, you know, I, I didn't project to the team, well, I already know how to do this. I don't need you people to tell me what to do. That, that would have been, a, you know, a terrible, terrible thing. And, you know, uh, so, so those are some of the things you can do. You don't take blame if, if you know, if something bad happens, you, you really got to invest a lot of time with uh, the people involved to make sure they know that, hey, this wasn't your mistake. We, we, we all decided how to go forward. We're here together. We're going to take the good. We're going to take the bad. You know, Randy and I have, have talked about this in previous podcasts, but one of the things that you were saying that really strikes me is that trust, creating that environment of trust, right, is the antidote of fear. If yeah, I'm I in think- a place that I feel that I can trust its integrity, its, its intention, then my fear sort of evaporates. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I always feel sorry for uh, the field goal kicker in the last three seconds of the game you know, who misses the field goal. And now, you know, the national championship is lost and he's forever burned in everybody's memory as having lost the game. And you say, well, what about all that other time before we got here about all the other drop passes or failed tackles or whatever it might've been. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, I know that's a unique comparison and you're talking about involving fans and so forth, but, but I think that's the kind of thing you don't, you don't want. Right. You know, and, and I've actually using that metaphor, I've, I've seen coaches call a kicker over and put an arm around him and say, hey, you know, 
thumbs up. You did, you did your best. You know, it's not, it's not on you. So you, you've got to be careful that if you're building a team and want that team to perform in the future, you know, you've got to be thinking about that. What sort of, um, what sort of trauma am I unintentionally, or is the situation unintentionally putting on their shoulders? They need reassurance. Yeah. I have a, a good friend who was a negotiator and he was in a hallway in a tenement building negotiating with a guy. And um, all of a sudden the guy broke out of the room with a gun and aimed it at the police officers. And my friend, a negotiator, not a tactical guy, had to shoot and kill him. Mm. And he, w- he felt terrible. Uh, you know, and I spent, uh, and he was a police officer in the West Coast and I'm back at the FBI Academy. And, and I spent a long time speaking with him that night and other nights you know, and reassuring him that he had no choice. Yeah. You know, here's a guy whose whole life is built on peacefully resolving situations. And then he's the one that had to use deadly force. Yeah. And, and it puts you in a real psychological challenge. And, you know, and I had to, not had to, but I, I was happy to, to continue to reinforce in his mind, you know, the perpetrator made the decisions uh, and, and the perpetrator alone. You you did what you were trained to do and what you needed to do to protect yourself and your partner. And, you know, people need to hear those things from leaders. You know, they, they, they need to be reassured and encouraged. Um, and sometimes we do make mistakes. You yeah, know? So what, I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that when someone makes the hard call, right, the outcome may not be great, as your example shows, they need to be shown the trust, right? Yeah. That you know, uh, in my... In my unit, we managed overseas kidnappings in the FBI, and I worked about 120 of those in my career. And I remember, um, you know, there'd be several cases where I'd have a phone call in the middle of the night from one of my negotiators in Colombia, South America, or the Philippines, and they would be at a critical decision-making point in the negotiations, and they would, uh, you know, have some concerns about, you know, a bold recommendation. And what I always told them, and I think they firmly believe it, I said, listen, you have told me, you give me your input. This is my decision. I'll, I'll rise and fall with this. If this goes badly and the ambassador or somebody comes after you, it's going to come back to me. You know, and, and I think that that gave my deployed negotiators the, uh, you know, the, the ability to do what they needed to do. And I, and I would have done that. And I, and I have done that a few times, you know, when somebody at my headquarters said, why did your guy do that? I said, well, I told him to do it. So you want to take somebody's head off, take mine off, but I'm standing by my people. And I think a good leader has to do that. When you have somebody that uh, experiences what they perceive as a failure, Gary, like, uh, like your negotiator who had to shoot uh, the perpetrator, you, you gave words of encouragement, words of solace uh, to him. Uh, apart from the words, what, what are some actions that you do or what, what can be done immediately following that to get somebody back on a horse or, or to get somebody recovered to where they feel confidence in themselves again? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not so sure that I, I have a, a, you know, a script for that um, and how you might um, interact with somebody who is on your own department and you're seeing or is readily accessible for face-to-face meetings is quite different from talking to somebody across the the country on a phone, but we had several phone calls through, through uh, uh, several days. And sometimes it's not just the clear message you send, supportive message. Sometimes a little bit of repetition is helpful too. You know, um, right. 
you know, just because you delivered these words, well, the person's in an emotional state. Maybe he's not fully hearing or in absorbing what it is you've said. So take the time to say it again. Um, you know, it applies the other way uh, too, Randy. I mean, I, I recall many a times uh, where I've been advising police on a really tough situation. You know, at some point when I give my recommendations, I'll say, well, you might want to try this. And they might say, well, that was two days ago. We tried that. And I said, well, yeah, but that was two days ago. A, a lot has changed uh, in this person's thinking in, in the circumstances, you know, uh, just because it didn't succeed when you first did it, didn't mean it won't later on, you know? Um, so I think you have to have that kind of mentality. It's, it's sort of a, a, akin to the question you asked me, but I, and then I, th I think mentally you have to follow up with people and um, say, I'm going to give them a call in a couple of weeks and you do a, do a health check and make sure they're doing okay. Yeah. But I think, I think soap people, time or bake time. Yeah. I think almost everybody needs to hear, particularly from somebody who is a mentor or someone who they look up to. Everybody needs to get that pat on the back, that uh, empathic uh, understanding of what they're feeling, what they've gone through. And um, I just can't, and, and I certainly think you can, overlay that in any number of business scenarios that you'd want. That sounds, empathy is a, a key factor. I think yeah. so. Yeah, I think so. Hey, I thought I would, um, I thought I'd hit you up here, Gary, you know, given what you do and your, I will call it relatively unique profession <laughs> in your career. I, I think we'd enjoy, you know, a couple of examples, you know, as a, as a hostage or crisis negotiator, when you're in there, we'd love to hear about anxiety and negotiation, right? So our listeners tend to be corporate leaders or, or people that you know have leadership that doesn't have such you know, table stakes as high as yours. Um, but we do a lot of negotiating, whether it's just about responsibilities in a job or even it's you know negotiating with your your spouse or your sibling or or something like that over who gets what dessert. I, I'm curious, um, how do you how do you manage? anxiety in the negotiation process? You know, a bit of it has to do with confidence and, and, and experience, having done it an awful lot. I, I suspect Tom Brady would uh, have different internal feelings in the Super Bowl game than some guy that's never been there before, you know? Um, so, so there's a certain bit of that that, uh, that takes place, but you've really got to um, put aside the feel, fear of failure. You, you know, I mean, I would say to a team, you know, um, we're, we're dealing with these clients and we all know that we're not going to win every deal, but let's go in confidently. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is the product we offer. We hope that uh, works with the client. Let's be prepared to answer their questions and, you know, make our case. But also, if they decide to go with someone else, it may not be based on a, a qualitative decision. They may just there may be a pre-existing personal connection. There may be a lower price point. I mean, who knows? But we're going to give it our best right. shot. And, and it's that fear of failure again. Just put it aside. You know, I, um, suicides, one of the major issues that come up in the negotiation, in the law enforcement negotiation profession, you know, and whenever I talk or train police officers, I say, listen, first and foremost, this is what you need to absorb and retain. Anything you say, nothing you say will cause another person to kill themselves. That is an individual decision, 100%. You can't say, I can't say to you, you know, uh, Jim, 
you know, I think you ought to kill yourself. You know, it doesn't look like you're really succeeding in life like I thought you should. Unless you're already close to doing that, you know, (laughs) you may be on the verge and I may be giving you a nudge, but, but, but I can't implant this brand new idea in your mind. It's just, it's not the way it works. So once the negotiator knows that, you're freed up from the concern of saying or doing the wrong thing. You know, when um, another thing I used to tell negotiators, when, when you're dealing with someone in a crisis, uh, you know, whether it's a bank robber or a suicidal person or a workplace violence situation, when you talk to them, imagine that you're talking to your best friend since childhood who lives across the country and calls you in the middle of the night and says, my wife's leaving me and I've lost my job. I mean, in that scenario, you're going to say like, oh, that sounds pretty bad. But, you know, this is an inconvenient time. Could we talk? Maybe uh, I got some time on Wednesday. No, because of this uh, connection you have, this, uh, you know, burden of, uh, in a positive way, uh, of friendship, you're going to talk with that person as as long as you think you can be helpful to them and, and you're making a contribution. Well, if we can do the same thing with a complete stranger, we can do it in a business crisis. We can do it in a lot of situations. You know that I'm going to listen thoughtfully. I'm going to restate to this person the content of what the problem or issue is that they're relaying to me. I'm going to reflect the emotions I hear from them. I'm going to earn the right to uh, to make suggestions and get them to consider alternative strategies for dealing with this problem. So, you know, again, I think maybe I have an overabundance of, but but I just don't think I think you have to learn to put aside this fear of failure. You know, right. You, you said something earlier about your negotiations when you and I talked first was at the end of a, at the end of a negotiation. Sometimes you would get some of your suspects who would say, I was just happy that somebody listened or I was just happy that I felt heard or I can't remember exactly what you said. Well, what, what we used to I mean, we, I got in the habit um, of asking, you know, perpetrators uh, what. What was it that I said or what did Jim say or, or Randy, whoever's negotiating? Because we want to learn. We want to learn for the next case. The answer is always the same. I, I don't remember what you said, but I like the way you said it. <laughs> and, and I think that's incredibly insightful. I mean, how we come across as human beings, are we genuine, sincere, trustworthy? Um, do we have a calm, controlled voice? You know, all of these uh, attributes and others uh, re- really uh, accrue from being in control of your own emotions and not being stifled by fear of failure. You know, um, all of these things come together. So, you know, it's, um, you know, that's the general approach. Now, I, I, I want to sound because I want to be and I will be someone that really cares about this person coming out alive. I don't know them. I'm not going to know them after this situation. But right now, I want to th- understand them, and I want to let them know that I really want to do whatever I can to help them out, and that that'll come through, and 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 you'll be successful more often than not. And you've seen that in your professional careers. You're negotiating. You yeah. start out as the you know the bad guy, the adversary, and by the end of it, hey, you know, buddy, I'm just here to help you. And you, you create that was- trust. Is it the antidote to their fear? Yeah, I mean. Uh- a lot of the people we dealt with are, are having a pretty bad day. And, and, and on top of that, most of them have a, um, a less than stellar track record with police, you know, so they're not always used to officer friendly. So 
what we do is when we get in the best negotiators tend to be very mature, stable folks with self-control. They're good interviewers, interrogators. They're good at uh, getting witnesses to tell us things and getting confessions. And, you know, instead of that commanding law enforcement voice, sir, you know, I'm uh, Gary Nestor with the police department. We need to talk about putting your gun down. Instead, <laughs> they get, you know, instead they get a, um, Mr. Smith, my name's Gary and I'm, I'm here to help you today. Yeah. Cause I'm, I heard that, you know, you're going through some tough, tough issues inside there with, uh, with your wife. And, you know, I, I want to see if I can help you. I mean, that's, you can see the, the drastic difference in that, you know, official law enforcement voice. And, you know, you see it in the military too. It's sort of the crisp language of the profession, but, you know, if you can get somebody to be really empathic and laid back and I, I'm, you know, I, I'm not talking about a phony, uh, you know, presentation. I mean, sure. I think it needs to be sincere and genuine and it, it shows through. People can tell, I mean, you can always fool somebody some of the time, but generally speaking, people can tell if you're sincere and genuine, if you're worthy of their respect, if you treat them in a respectful manner and everybody wants respect, everybody, um, you're more likely to get it in return. Right. Gary, you've been in a lot of situations um, and I'm sure you've felt fear before. Um, couple, I guess, two questions. One, how, how have you come to recognize fear within yourself? Because um, sometimes you're just in the midst of it. You just know, oh, I'm afraid. But, but that comes upon us, right? There's a feeling that comes upon us to recognize that coming upon you. And then is there anything you do to calm that fear once you realize you are afraid? Well, that's a really good good question, Randy. I'm not I'm not sure that I have a good a good answer there, but you know, I I, I feel as though a, a good negotiator is, is a bit like a, a trauma surgeon. You know, you you report to the hospital and there's been this mass casualty event and people are coming in. There's just horrific injuries, and you know, the question is, how does the trauma surgeon emotionally deal with all this? Well. The, the answer is that they don't right away. They put it aside. They compartmentalize it. They, they are able to focus in the midst of chaos. You know, as Rudyard Kipling says, if you can keep your head about you when all else are losing theirs, they know what has to be done now. Now, after, you know, everybody's stabilized and the emergency room is clear, you know, maybe that person starts to shake and has a cigarette, you know, but... Or drink, yeah. <laughs> all, all of the above. You know, and I think... I think that's uh, akin to, to, to how I've uh, seen myself in some of those situations. You know, it's not that I'm not scared or, or I don't appreciate the risks. It's just, you know, you, you try to manage that and know what has to be done and what, what isn't going to be done. And, you know, here we go. I think you hit a, a good word there. You focus on the, on the task at hand, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, focus. Yeah. In my book, I talk about a situation in, uh, North Carolina on an Amtrak train and a, you know, there was a, a, a man inside, he killed his, he was a drug runner. He killed his sister and a little baby had uh, died of dehydration. And he has a little girl in there who's fighting for her life because of uh, the health conditions in there. And, you know, and when the Spanish speaking negotiator who I was coaching learned that the baby had died as re relayed to us by the perpetrator, he, he almost broke down. I said, Ray, we don't have time for this. Yeah. We can't bring her back. We're not God. We can't resurrect her. But we have a little girl in there 
that we have to give our all for to get her out. And he shook it off like it was, uh, you know, water on a duck's back and he went right to work and he was brilliant. But sometimes you, you have to steer people into, you know, it's the old serenity prayer to understand what you can do and what you can't do, you know? And, uh, and I think that's really important. And, you know, some of us maybe think in that regard a little bit more clearly than others, but for most people, I think you, you can develop those skills if you, if you really work on it, you know, uh, I mean, I have friends that get so frazzled over something that happened that they're not able to really attend to any other activity or function, you know. And I said, "Well, you got you, you got to learn to put this aside for now and come back to it, and uh, don't don't let it dominate your ability to function effectively." Well, and you deal you've dealt with the most extreme of circumstances, much like you know military and combat and things like that. And again, people in, in corporate America they 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 think well surely you know um, the solution to this wouldn't be the same but but it, it's 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 just a wonder how the answer to that the focus whether you're with life and death situation or you're dealing with taxes and uh, and making sure the budget's on on track it it just comes back to focusing and doing what's yeah. the you know Randy I think uh, if you break it down. Everything in life is about relationships. We are social animals. There is almost, unless you're Tom Hanks and living with a, a volleyball and an ice skate on an island, <laughs> most of us, uh, most of us are are deeply immersed every day with other human beings. So we've evolved in ways to cooperate for our mutual benefit. So we really have to. We we rarely stop and think about that. We just do it, but particularly if you're in a tense situation, whether it's a business negotiation, or acquisition, or whatever it might be, or, or the things I used to do, you know, you, you still have to focus on creating that relationship. I think a big problem people make in the business world, particularly, is they try to problem solve too soon. We very quickly want to say, what's the problem? Let's solve it. Let's make an offer, move on. When instead you need to slow down a little bit and, and first think of creating a positive relationship. And then from there, it makes everything happen. Um, I mean, you know, this is business people. I mean, some of that you've, some client that you've interacted with for a while. I mean, those are pretty, pretty easy uh, engagements because you know each other, you know, you, you're not, there's no pretense, there's no introduction. You know, it, it's you and this person you've dealt with for several years and you, and you can get down to business, but there's also part of the reason you've been doing that business is because you do have a relationship with trust. Uh, you know, and this guy might say, well, you know, I, yeah, you know, my controller has been trying to get me to switch companies, but you know, I know Jim and Randy and uh, you know, they're my guys, you know, and uh, I'm comfortable working with them and that's where I'm keeping my business. Well, clearly you've made a mistake in judgment right there. Keeping your business in Randy's company. You are a dead man. Eventually, your bills have gone downhill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, I mean, there's a couple key words, you know, that we've talked about self-control. So in other words, before you can begin to influence someone else, you have to be able to control your own emotions. And we've talked about that in a couple different ways. And then the other thing is, tending to this relationship, either building or sustaining whatever we're talking about, where you, you know, you demonstrate to somebody that I understand your problems, your concerns, your issues, your perspective, and how you feel about that. And it's, it's the most 
a common and misunderstood thing in the world. And a lot of us don't do it very well, frankly. But if you can purposefully, I mean, Stephen Covey, the business guru, says it pretty well. He says, first, seek to understand and, and then to be understood. And if you go through life and, and your interactions with that sort of approach in mind, I think for the most part, you're going to be far more successful. Agree. Wonderful. All right. Well, that covered all of my questions I had on our list. And that was perfect, Gary. Really do appreciate it.